You're listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes, the podcast all about absolutely 100% true facts that are not made up. I'm your host, Piper Dawes, and with me as always is Christopher Parr, director of the Munchausen Institute for Totally Real Research. Hi, Chris. Hi, Piper. Hi. Chris has uh, gathered his favourite facts from the Institute's activity this week, and he's going to share them with us today. What are you saying, Chris? I am saying, I am saying, but I'm done saying I am saying, and I am now saying... In the words of Detective Frank Thorne, if he were an academic and not a police officer living in a frankly unconvincing dystopian future of riots, overpopulation and ecological collapse, Soylent Green is facts! After last week, we've been asked to recommend you don't do anything other than sit calmly and quietly while you listen to the facts. Don't go standing on one leg for the duration, particularly if you're driving a coachload of school children to the Natural History Museum. It's just irresponsible, and we never once suggested you should do it. Here's Chris with the first fact. British police experimented with social behaviour orders. In Britain, we have a few things that give us a cultural identity. Train spotting both the film and the pastime, and the other pastime. Failing democracy, and of course, antisocial behaviour is part of what makes us British. However, sometimes it gets a bit much, and the police have to get involved. Someone puts a traffic cone on the head of a Winston Churchill statue, for example, and the whole country grinds to a halt. There have been a number of ways the police tackle these incidents, not all of them favourable, including antisocial behaviour orders. But what, Chris, is a social behaviour order? Right, well, antisocial behaviour orders, or ASBOs, as they were known, were civil injunctions against anyone who has engaged in what was seen as antisocial behaviour and meant that if they did it again, they could go to jail. Asbos were invented in 1998 by Tony Blair, most famous for his other invention, the parliamentary sport of Blair Ball, but also for starting an illegal war and for being prime minister for a bit. Asbos were controversial from the start, receiving criticism for targeting the working class, young people and those with mental health issues, and for basically being a judicial plaster that did little to tackle underlying socio-economic issues. I like the term judicial plaster. That was good. Obviously, I don't like the concept judicial plaster. It's not good. But yes. Or band-aid for our American listeners. Oh, shit. Yes. We've got to make sure everyone knows what we're talking about. Yeah. (laughs) Judicial band-aid. Not to be confused with the music festival set up to raise money for disadvantaged judges. (laughs) So basically, the police have this way of dealing with the povos. And it's not going well, I, I would imagine. I, I mean, I've heard it's not going well. It's not great, is it? Well, it wasn't going well, which is why ASBOs aren't a thing anymore. Right. But when they were a thing, to assuage the criticisms against the ASBO, the British government piloted a sister scheme, the Social Behaviour Order, or SPO. Right, I'm not happy with a, a noun that starts with two consonants. It, it doesn't work. I, I can't do it. I'm probably going to call them SBOs. No, you have to say SBO. Do I? It's easy enough, Piper. It's like sphere. Oh, you're not wrong, actually. Why does that feel easy and SPO doesn't? Oh, I thought you just said it then. Oh, I did. And you had no trouble with it. Yeah, good point. Okay, I should have faith in my, myself, really, shouldn't I? So what exactly did they involve then, these, these SPOs? So a SPO was a civil, uh, not injunction, 
a civil award for pro-social behaviour. The idea was to reward people who exhibited good behaviour and to encourage anti-social elements to behave better. Kind of like society-wide gold stars. So a SPO was awarded when someone reported somebody else's good behaviour. You couldn't report your own behaviour. Um, I guess because you could just say anything if you were. Oh, I saved a hundred orphans today. <laughs> I might try that. <laughs> Not saving a hundred orphans, just saying I've done it. Things that could get you a SPO included helping people across the street, administering first aid, collecting for charity, but not like one of those annoying people in the town centre who asks for your bank details. Right, yes. I think it, it sounds like, Chris, it's, it's potentially filling a void that they should be filling with community activities. Like, I mean, that when I was growing up, this sort of positive reinforcement thing was like cub badges and scout badges. You know, you've done a good thing. We should get more out of people doing that sort of thing. So we'll reward them with these little little badges you can put on your on your uniform. When I was a kid, that was very important to me, all right? <laughs> yes. I mean, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Back in My Day with oh, no. Old Lady Piper. <laughs> oh, stop it. So Asbo's, that's done with, but are Spo's still going? And those Spo's ended with Asbo's. Oh, okay. Okay, so they tried it. Didn't work. And they were like, Do you know what? None of this is fucking working. We're just going to get rid of all these acronyms and just try something else. Did they, did they try anything else instead? Did they fill that void with something else? Did they bring back the scouts? Well, the scouts have existed all through this. They were always there. Well, why are people getting into trouble for loitering and not helping old ladies to cross the road and not tying reef knots correctly? Because not everyone is in the scouts. Well, exactly. Oh, right. Yes. Well, they should be. I feel like... Oh, so are you advocating for some kind of national service, but for scouts? Yes. Well, I mean, no, because, you know, we want to have sort of... People want to have agency in these these things. You don't want to like, just force them to do it, but... Although, although, I mean, people are okay with the national curriculum. Maybe you could have it as an, a, like a scout class. Bear Grylls could teach it. It'd be much better than having an SBO, sorry, a SPO, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think there's a slight difference between the stuff the scouts get up to and the stuff Bear Grylls gets up to. You don't have a, I eat a bear's liver badge. Yes, I think parents might complain if, um, if, the, if their kids came home and said, today, Mr. Grylls made us drink our own piss. But I've not been over what you actually get if you get a SPO. Sorry, no, I've just been annoyed at the uh, state of society and, and, and the short-sightedness of the law enforcement officers in our country and got a little bit sidetracked. Please do tell us about that, Chris. Yeah, so if you were awarded a SPO, you would get a prize. A prize? Yes. So the kinds of good behaviour that could get you a SPO were organised into tiers. And each tier contained a number of different prizes. A judge would decide which tier your behaviour fell into. And you were able to choose a prize from the relevant tier. So low tier prizes included things like lollipops and football stickers. Mid tier prizes were things like small toys, like a pirate eye patch or something, or VHS tapes. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Yeah. And top tier prizes included DVDs and Argos vouchers. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. No, it was a, in the ni- late 90s, as a child, I would have definitely enjoyed some Argos vouchers. 
could finally get that Power Rangers Megazord you've wanted for so long. No, I mean, I can't imagine. All the vouchers in the world couldn't buy that. It was like a thousand pounds. It was all the all the other toys. You had to get all them and it, it made it into the Megazord. You could just buy it. Yeah, you could. Could you? Well, my mum said I couldn't. I mean, it was still super expensive, but you could buy the Megazord. Oh. I never had one, but I wanted one. Yeah. I mean, I obviously, I was quite conflicted. I wanted, a, I definitely wanted a Megazord. I also wanted the Barbie dream house. Is there some way to combine the two? I was literally just thinking that. <laughs> Weirdly, throughout my childhood, never considered that as a thing that could happen. But Like each bit would be a different room, but they'd all combine into some kind of robot house that would walk around and fight things. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I thought you meant in some sort of domestic situation between Barbie and the robots. Oh, what you mean like, so it's Barbie's dream house, but the Megazord comes round for tea? <laughs> here's another fact from deep in the munchausen bolts it's fact two there is a department of opposites so i don't know if you've ever done this chris where you start writing something and then you have to backspace and get rid of everything because it doesn't make any sense then you write a bit again and then you backspace again because it doesn't make any sense. I did that about 18 times with this response to what you just said. But to be honest, I actually have no idea what it means. So what is what do you mean, Chris, a department of opposites? So this is an American non-government organization, which for the past 10 years or so has been conducting research to determine the opposite of everything. Not the actual opposite of everything. We already know what that is. It's nothing. They're trying to work out the individual opposite for every single individual thing ever in the history of this and any other universe. This is going to be a confusing one for me, Chris. I'll say that right from the outset, because I already started dealing with in my brain about the philosophy of, of just when you said like like the opposite of everything would be nothing, but then some things don't have an opposite and you'd say the opposite of that is nothing because it doesn't have an opposite. So is, does that mean that then, then the opposite of everything doesn't actually count as a thing because actually it doesn't have an opposite because it's nothing? Well, no, because if something doesn't have an opposite, I mean, obviously the Department of Opposite would disagree on this statement, but outside of that, like before before we get into this whole thing, prior to the existence of the Department of Opposites, if something doesn't have an opposite, you wouldn't say its opposite is nothing. You would say it doesn't have an opposite, therefore clearing up any ontological quandary you might have got yourself into. Right, yes. Um, the quandary would be the right word. I've, 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 I've got myself all, all of a, all of a t- tither. Say <laughs> <laughs> uh, same, same more words. The Department of Opposites job has already been done for a lot of things. As we've already said, the opposite of everything is nothing. Uh, the opposite of up is down. The opposite of in is out. The opposite of hot is cold, and so on. Yeah. Uh, the difficulty comes in the things whose opposites are not so obvious. Red and violet are opposites on the visible colour spectrum. But what about green? Right smack in the middle, all on its own. Most people would say that the opposite of man is woman, but what about non-binary people? Is the opposite of a baby an adult, an elderly person, or a dead person? And then there are the things for which there is no clear opposite at all. What is the opposite of a table, or the Battle of Hastings, or David Bowie's seminal 1972 album The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars? (laughs) 
I don't know, but I'm pretty sure it's a Scar album. It might be Life Lessons for Losers by Scar Band Wobbly Bob. Cool. Okay. Why? Why are they doing this, Chris? Why is there a Department of Opposites? Well, it might all seem arbitrary and even pointless, but the department itself claims that determining the opposite of all the things ever could have significant real-world applications. Oh, okay. One example they use a lot is gravity. If, they say, we could work out the opposite of gravity, then we might be able to use that knowledge to invent anti-gravity technology. Um, another example they use is if we could find the opposite of cancer, we might be able to cure a cancer. Right. So, I mean, but this is all theoretical, right? Yeah. And also, as many of the department's critics have pointed out, they do seem to be operating on the red wine, white wine logic. As in, if you spilt red wine, just use white wine to get it out. Oh, right. Yes. I see. But is, I mean, is white wine the opposite of red wine? Just because there's two things in that, that in that data set, does that mean that, that one's the opposite of the other? Well, you'd think so, but then there's rosé. So what does that put you? Oh, that's something that's pretty much the most basic concept that you learn when you're, I think, four is actually quite complicated. <laughs> <laughs> is that the age you learn? Before that, no one's allowed to mention it. I don't bring it opposites as a three-year-old here. Yeah. <laughs> on your fourth birthday, your parents sit you down... Right, Piper, now that you're four, there's something you need to know. But um, in addition to the possibly impossible task of determining the opposite of everything ever, even the things which probably don't have an opposition, much of the department's time has been taken up with its own opposite. Obviously, if they are determining the opposite of everything, then... The Department of Opposites has to find its own opposite, which is why they set up their sister organisation, the Department of Equivalencies, which is tasked with finding the similarities between every single thing ever. But surely the Department of, what, what did you call it? I called it the Department of Equivalencies because that's its name. Yes, thank you. The uh, Department of Equivalencies, surely, if they're finding the similarities between things, that's not actually the opposite of the Department of Opposites, because the Department of Opposites is looking at the extreme difference. So the, the idea that there's w only one thing is completely different. If you're, if if you want the opposite of that department, you want a department that's looking at one thing and what's uh, and saying what's exactly the same as this, rather than similarities. We're talking about extremes here with the with the Department of Opposites. It must be the same with the Department of um, of Equivalencies. Not necessarily. I mean, like for example, up and down are opposites, but they're both spatial dimensions, so they exist within the same thing. So it's not extreme. It's not like you say, "Well, what's the opposite of up?" Well, it must be something completely different. It must be a bit of fluff in my belly button. <laughs> yes, yeah, so the Department of Opposites looks at a thing and determines what within the the general the category of that thing is at the other end of that category. And the Department of Equivalencies looks at a thing and says, well, what is closest to that thing? So as any, I know that they're having trouble sort of trying to find opposites for the more difficult things that don't already obviously have opposites. Have they discovered anything su surprising themselves? 
So we're coming up to the festive period. So one relevant thing might be that they found that the opposite of everyone's favourite Christmas film, Die Hard, is Downton Abbey. Okay, but Downton Abbey's not a film. No, but it is a piece of media, a long-form piece of media, which puts it in opposition to the feature-length Die Hard. Is a period piece, as opposed to Die Hard, which is, well, set in the present when it was made. And Die Hard is full of exciting action and comedic quips and intrigue and general excitement. And Downton Abbey is the most boring thing you've ever watched in your life. So they're opposites. (laughs) Okay, fine. That's good. That's good. Okay, well, I mean, this is clearly very important work <laughs> that we now i mean i don't know how we managed before the department of opposites began where do they even get their funding chris uh, they get their funding kind of the same way we get our, our funding not through a jumble sale and lecture series but through a a jumble sale and then they do a kind of it's kind of like antiques roadshow but instead of bringing something in and they tell you how much it's worth you bring something in and they tell you what this opposite is. Oh, okay. So th- these these have got to be things, have they? They can't bring in just a concept. And then they bring in actual physical objects, yes. Why are you, you can't walk in and <laughs> dead serious. <laughs> I mean otherwise you just walk up to them saying, um, on we and they'd go, Vigor <laughs> and you'd walk off. Well, we you'd be very grateful. Would you? <laughs> I'm not sure I'd be that grateful <laughs> for just saying a word at somebody and they say it's Antonin back at me. And that's the 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 fulfilment of the exchange. Right. Okay. Well, <laughs> imagine that is what it is, Chris, because I, I hope that it is. And it's not just like you bring in, I don't know, a piggy bank and then they say, right, well, this is very interesting. This is clearly a piggy bank because that's what it is. Then they hold it like they do on Antiques Roadshow. They look look around it as if that makes a difference to their answer. And then they go, they go, right, well, the opposite of a piggy bank is whatever the opposite of a piggy bank is because I've given myself a really difficult one, apparently. You have, but it also, <laughs> um, it does bring up the, the interesting thing of what the Department of Opposites does. I'll take you through what I understand is their basic process. Okay. So for a thing like a piggy bank, for which there is no clear opposite, they will consider the object and they will basically try and determine what its kind of most fundamental nature is um, and from there work out the opposite. So with a piggy bank, you've got a few things you could choose from. You've got the fact that it's a pig, but its main thing is obviously an object to hold money. So what is the opposite of something that holds money? It's something that spends money. So the opposite of a piggy bank might be a direct debit. Ooh, interesting. It could be spends money or takes money. So like a bank robber or a charity mugger. Um... Exactly, yeah. Um, if you wanted to get really abstract about it, you could say, well, what's the opposite of a pig? A pig is a four-legged mammal. So maybe it would be a no-legged reptile, like a snake. So in purely abstract terms, the opposite of a piggy bank might be a snake who sits in the town centre and 
gets people's bank details for Save the Children. <laughs> Sometimes we like to look clever, so we do history-related facts. Here's one... Oh, I'm going to do that again. Sometimes we like to look clever, so we do history-related facts. Here comes one now. It is fact three. I don't need to look clever, Piper. Well, what I'm saying is I get intimidated by the history-related facts because it's a lot of stuff that I don't know anything about. But isn't that true of all facts, regardless of their temporal nature? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, so basically... Okay, so... Sometimes we like to look clever on this show, so we do facts. <laughs> Not sometimes, all the time. Yes. <laughs> here, here is another section of an episode of the podcast that we do that constantly intimidates me. Let's go. Changes made to the Sistine Chapel include underpants, mustaches and novelty t-shirts. The Sistine Chapel, or as I thought it was named when I was younger, the 16th Chapel is the Pope's main church where he rocks out with the Lord. Uh, it was famously painted on the inside by Michelangelo because turtles are better at scaling walls and ceilings than people. But what's this about novelty t-shirts, Chris? So you thinking it was the Sixteen Chapel isn't actually that far from the truth, Piper. What? So the Sistine Chapel in Vatican City is named after Pope Sixtus IV who had it built between 1473 and 1481. So it is almost 16, because it was Sixtus, and then they got... I'm not sure of the etymology, but they got called the Sistine. Okay, so the, the, the bit from Sistine that was the original thing it was named after was the bit that actually sounds like six. It was... It was, it was but then that got... Okay, right, fine. Okay, so, so I'm right. <laughs> Uh, you are, I would say, probably like maybe an eighth right. Great. I mean, well done, teenage me. So this obviously created a lasting legacy for Sixtus IV. And since then, various popes have tried to forge their own legacies by adding to the chapel. Most famously and successfully, Pope Julius II commissioned Michelangelo, not the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. I facetiously implied. To paint the chapel's ceiling and walls, which has since become perhaps the most famous ceiling in the world. Maybe even more famous than the chapel itself. Yes, I mean, ceilings don't really, I mean, there aren't, I don't know of any famous ceilings. That's probably, I mean, it's not a high bar, is it? But it's still cool. Um, I'd say it's a high bar. I mean, first of all, it's quite high. No, I mean, no, I mean. But know. also the paintings are quite good. So, you know, it's it's both spatially and artistically high. <laughs> what, I, <laughs> what I mean is, it's not hard to be the best ceiling in the world because who gives a fuck about ceilings generally? But it just so happens that it's so good, even though that it doesn't need to be to be the best ceiling in the world. But that's not what they were going for. They weren't like, Michelangelo, can you just paint the best ceiling in the world? That wasn't their idea, was it? <laughs> no. <laughs> right, so... <laughs> Pope man. <laughs> One day I was working in the Pope factory <laughs> and I fell into a vat of Pope. <laughs> now I have the power of Pope. I am Pope Man. Oh, Chris, stop it. Oh, dear. Right, okay, so let's just get cut to the chase of this, Chris. Why Why? Why are there novelty t-shirts? What, what's, what's the deal? 
I don't understand. Right, well, we'll get onto the novelty T-shirts in a bit. We're going to go through this chronologically. Okay, so we're not cutting to the chase. That's fine. So in 1555, Pope Paul IV had all the genitals in the chapel painted over with fig leaves. But the fig leaves were almost immediately removed by Paul's successor, Pius IV. 400 years later, Pius XII instigated another genital cover-up, but this time updating proceedings by adding underpants to all the nude figures. So it's sort of like they've gone, this, let's use the classic cover-up, fig leaves, and they've gone, no, we don't want that. And then the, and then dispositions change over time, and then they're like, we actually want to cover up the willies. And then they go with some underpants. Yeah, because by that time, fashion had changed, and people weren't just sporting foliage. They were sporting actual clothes. Right. I d- I know. I thought it was a sort of figurative thing from the Bible. I thought I didn't think that there was that. That was actually a thing that people did. It was, and I was being facetious, Piper. Uh, well, I just assumed that I don't know something about the world. <laughs> right. Carry on then. Sorry. Yeah. So in the 19th century, Pope Pius IX attempted to make the figures on the ceiling and the various frescoes look more contemporary by adding moustaches to them. Oh, so this wasn't a censorship thing at this point. This is this is more just fun. It's not fun. It's like I said, it's trying to develop a legacy via the Sistine Chapel. Okay. Of course, a lot of people already have beards because they're from the Bible times. But those who were previously clean-shaven, including women, were given handlebar moustaches, imperial moustaches, pencil moustaches. And not wanting to augment the primal patriarch too much, Michelangelo's Adam was, unfortunately, given future events, given a toothbrush moustache. So it was just, it, it, obviously, he didn't know about Hitler at that time. Well, Hitler didn't exist at that time, so... Yes. No, I have managed to get that far on my own, Chris. <laughs> it is, it's, it's mere coincidence. But yes, looking through a 10th century lens, or even a 20th century lens, pretty weird. So what about after that, then? Well, the moustaches were eventually removed. But in the 1990s... Pope John Paul II also tried to update the chapel's artwork by adding novelty t-shirts to the figures in order to attract the young people to the church. Say what you want about the the, the Catholics, but the Vatican is constantly, constantly trying to get get with the kids. Not get with the kids, get be down with the well, get with the kids well, as well. No, no, <laughs> they are trying to get with the kids, Piper. That's been proven. <laughs> Can you please tell us about these novelty t-shirts that are now a part of, apparently, apparently a part of the, one of the most famous paintings in the world? Oh, well, they're not now because they were removed uh, sometime in the early 2000s. Oh, wait then. So can we just, can we just, before you go on to the novelty t-shirts, where are we now with the Sistine Chapel? What is it, has it, has it been restored to its former glory or are we? Currently, the Sistine Chapel, due to the efforts of restorationists, looks, as far as we can tell, as close to its original grandeur as we can get it. All the embellishments have been removed and no Pope since John Paul II has tried to augment it in any fashion. Right, so tell us about these novelty t-shirts, Chris. So Moses was wearing a t-shirt saying, 
I went up Mount Sinai and all I got were these lousy commandments. <laughs> Jesus Christ was wearing a T-shirt saying, Got wood, because as we all know, he did eventually get wood in the fashion. Yes, Chris, yes, he did. And most famously, God in the the famous image of God touching fingers with Adam. God was wearing a t-shirt saying, I'm with stupid, with an arrow pointing towards Adam. <laughs> Hold on to your hats. It's the final fact. There was a game show for crows. Right, Chris. Crows tend to be pretty uninterested in game shows. I mean, I'm assuming here, given my lack of ornithological experience, but I I don't feel like it's high on their list of important stuff to do in the day. You know, like it's like one, squawk. Two, pick up shiny. Three, watch strike it lucky till bedtime. It's not not the case. They don't give a shit. No, they've got crow stuff to do. I'm already annoyed. Why is there a game show for crows, Chris? So the Netherlands have made two great contributions to human civilization: The modern field of ethology, the study of animal behavior, pioneered by Nico Tinbergen and continued by the likes of Fran de Waal, and TV game shows with Dutch media company Endemol creating the likes of Big Brother, The Voice, and The Big Donor Show. I had no idea that the Netherlands essentially... What, did they invent the, the, the format of the game show, or did they just make it good, or, or at least make it marketable? Uh, they didn't invent the format of the game show. They invented a lot of the game show formats we're familiar with now, like Big Brother, The Voice, Fear Factor was another one of theirs, Golden Balls was one of theirs. So what you're saying is they made a game show for crows. Why? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so this was a collaboration between these two pillars of Dutch culture. Ethnologists have long known about the intelligence of corvids, birds like crows and ravens. They're pretty intelligent then. They're pretty uh, on it. Yes, they are on it. As you say, they can use and even make rudimentary tools. And in one experiment, they were observed deferring an immediate reward in favour of what they had reason to believe was a greater reward in an unopened box. This, of course, has parallels to that other great Dutch invention, Deal or No Deal. And in order to raise awareness of ethology and animal cognition, a special edition of Deal or No Deal was aired in 2009, in which the contestants were crows, ravens, rooks and magpies. Whoa, so it's not just crows then. It's all of the, all of the corvids. All the corvids, yes. It's a corvid smorgasbord. A corvid board. <laughs> They've not got Noel Edmonds, presumably. No, this was a Dutch production. Have they got a Corvid Noel Edmonds equivalent? Well, no, they had famous Dutch presenter Bo van Erven Dorens presenting. Did you just make that up? No, that's his name. 
Bovan Irvin Dorans was the presenter of the Dutch version. <laughs> You're being very xenophobic here, Piper, by laughing at no. a very real Dutch name of an actual Dutch person who presented the Dutch version of Deal or No Deal at this period in time. Bovan Irvin Dorans. Okay, so so it, it's a human presenter. Yes. Bo van Erwendorens, yes. Thank you, which is a real person from a real place. An actual person who I've not made up, honest. And he, he presented Deal or No Deal for birds. The birds, I'm pretty sure, can't speak human languages. That is correct. Right. And the presenter... Bo van Erwendorens. I'm pretty sure can't speak Corvid. No. No, right. So... How does this work? So, like the human version of Deal or No Deal, each bird was assigned a box. But instead of a piece of paper with an amount of money written on it, the bird's boxes contained varying numbers of seeds, uh, ranging from just one to 10,000 seeds. Oh, they'd go sick over that, wouldn't they? It's a lot of seeds. If you're into seeds... Which Corvids are... Also, like the human version, one bird was chosen to be the main contestant. And that bird then indicated other birds' boxes it wanted to open and so eliminate from the game. And occasionally, the banker would show the bird an amount of seeds that it could exchange for its own box. The banker, as in the guy that's normally on the other end of a telephone in the the human version of this game. Yes, but because birds can't pick up telephones, it was just a guy who would turn up and show the bird an amount of seeds it could have in exchange for uh, whatever amount of seeds happened to be in its own box. So it's like, I don't know if you've ever watched the uh, at least the uh, the English version of the show, the English human version, sorry. There was no English Corvid version. Well, I mean, you've turned my world upside down, Chris. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> Anything could be possible. Yeah. There could be a, a version with abstract concepts, with ennui trying to determine what's in Jealousy's box. <laughs> I think we're getting silly now. So so basically, it's a bunch of seeds, and it could be a bit of seeds. It could even just be one seed. But if you're, if you're a, a shrewd bird, then... Maybe it might be more than one. That's the point. Yes. And technically speaking, the winning bird, a crow named Christopher. Uh, the birds all had names and presenter Bo Van Irvin Dorans talked to them like the human contestants. Well, I love that. I was going to ask, actually. That's good. So Christopher the crow is technically the most successful contestant in Deal or No Deal history. What? Even the human one? Yeah, because his original box, the box he started with, contained just a single seed. But he won the game by swapping it for the sole remaining box that turned out to contain the maximum amount of 10,000 seeds. That's incredible. Okay, so how does the crow indicate that they don't want to have the box that's in front of them? That How do they indicate to everyone involved that they want to go with a different one? They would fly to that box and peck at its lid. As in, I want what's in this one. Right. 
Or they would, like, for example, during the initial rounds, like, to indicate they wanted to stick with their own box, they would peck at their own box's lid. I will stick with this one. Right, okay, okay. I mean, to be honest, even even in, in the human languages, it's a fairly basic concept, isn't it? They zhuzh it up, but really, it's like, do you want to stick with this? Yes or no? And then that's it. It's not golden balls, is it? <laughs> golden balls for Corvids would be possibly slightly more difficult. <laughs> Uh, it would be interesting to see if if non-human animals can grasp the rudiments of game theory. If the pioneers of Netherland game shows haven't come up with this so far, then maybe we can do it. You got any Corvid? Um, there's a bunch of magpies around my house. I could try and wrangle them, I suppose. I feel like this is a sort of project that we'll regret starting. Well, to be honest, Piper, I probably wouldn't even start it. <laughs> That is it. That's the end of this episode of Chickens Can't See Cubes with me, Piper Dawes. I can be found on Twitter at Piper Talks and Christopher Parr from the Munchausen Institute. I can be found on Twitter at Troby Norton and the Institute can be found at Photo Ray Ray M-U-I-N-F-O-T-O-R-E-R-E. You can also contact the podcast on Twitter at C-Cubes and Facebook and Instagram at Chickens Can't See Cubes. If you want to join the join in the conversation on Discord, PM us for a link. Thank you for listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes. And remember, you probably could make it up, but we haven't. Honest. And we'll catch you once again on next week's show. Bye, everyone. Bye. What if what if you were the Pope and you had this all of this this potential humor that could come out and you had to be serious? Wouldn't you just go, I'm just gonna do some novelty t-shirts and justify it with some fucking papal bullshit? Well, if I were the Pope through some bizarre series of increasingly unlikely events, an absolutely catastrophic series of events would need to occur for me to be Pope. Then, yeah, perhaps I would say, yeah, um, let's get rid of all the, the frescoes and the God-touching Adam's finger in the weird way. And uh, let's just do, like, you see Pokemon cards? Just put all my Pokemon cards on the <laughs> ceiling so I can see them when I'm doing my, my Pope stuff. I might, though, I might keep the God bit touching his finger to the shiny Charizard. Is that the best one you've got or the best one you could get? No, that's Piper. the best one, Piper. Everyone knows that's the best one. They're just cartoon baseball cards. I don't fucking care. Not baseball. The trade. It's a trading card battle game, Piper. <laughs> and the shiny Charizard, it's got like a 60 damage <laughs> fire attack. What are you fucking talking about? It's the fucking shine... Jesus Christ. (laughs) In a very literal sense. (laughs) 